Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is April the 19th, 2023. Um, as we steam into the age of AI, of generative AI, uh, well, we've been looking back a little bit on the show at the age of social media, which might be coming to a close. We did a show a few weeks ago with Glenn Reynolds, one of the original bloggers, otherwise known as Instapundit. Um, he was very influential, particularly uh, in the early part of the 21st century. We also did a show with one of tech's um, most heavy-hitting journalists, Stephen Levy, on the inside story of the early social media companies like Friendster and MySpace and Facebook. Um, he's the author of a book, Facebook, The Inside Story. And we're continuing that theme today with my guest, Julia Angwin. She, like Stephen Levy, is a, a longtime tech writer and correspondent. She founded The Markup. She's just left that now. And she's also the author of a book, the authoritative history of MySpace called Stealing MySpace, the battle to control the most popular website in America, which came out in 2009. It was a long time ago, Julia, wasn't it? Indeed it was. <laughs> Does it seem like another age now when you think back at MySpace and even that book and the research you did for it? It does feel like another time, but also strangely the same time um, in the sense that like, the tech industry has always been um, in this hype cycles. And right now we're in the AI one, but in some ways it feels very similar to the kind of era that MySpace was in where there were just tons of social networks arising and it was a real race to see who was going to win. I, uh, for the purposes here, I wasn't even sure if MySpace still exists. It kind of does, but it's an odd website. Um, it was founded uh, or launched in August 2003. And as it happened, their founder or one of their co-founders, Crystal Wolf, was on the show uh, when it was a TechCrunch show back in 2011 at an event called FailCon, which was probably appropriate. Very briefly, um, Julia, tell us the story of my uh, of MySpace. I, I don't want to go into too much detail because it was a long time ago and probably not enormously relevant. Yeah, I mean, the thing about MySpace that was so interesting to me as a tech reporter who really, I grew up in Silicon Valley and covered tech companies um, most of my career, was that it was an LA company based and really founded by sort of non-techies who were more like rock and roll club kids than um, the normal entrepreneurs that I was used to dealing with who were really brainy engineers. And what was interesting about it is they were in basically kind of um, scummy marketing business, um, doing kind of weird online e-commerce scams and pop-up ads and all sorts of kind of bottom feeding internet um, activities. And they decided to try to start a social network as well. And the thing that was really distinguished MySpace was that they made it feel like a nightclub. It was um, loud, you could play music, um, which seems obvious now, but at that time, the idea that you could put music on your own little web page and it would play when people came and you could decorate your page with like neon lights and stuff. It felt 
dangerous and cool in a way that the other social networks didn't. The other ones were built by engineers and they were sort of much more programmer friendly, like clean, um, but also like a lot of menus and drop downs and like you had to a little bit be tech savvy to navigate them. And so MySpace really showed that you could bring this sort of vibe online and that people wanted it. You said that it, it, it looked louder, noisier, more colorful, um, more like a club than the other social media websites. Which ones in particular? You're talking about Friendster? I mean, this was pre-Facebook, of course. Yeah, although Facebook started around the, the same time as well. Um, but yeah, Friendster was um, the main one at the time that, but there were even others um, whose names have been lost to history, but there were uh, several of them, but Friendster was the main one. And the one thing about MySpace also was that they had uh, a real commitment to anonymity so that you didn't have to use your real name on the service. And that was a huge debate that was playing out on Friendster about whether you could have real names or fake names. And there was a big debate in that community about what was the right way to go. Facebook made an early call to demand real identities and proof originally of your identity. So MySpace also kind of staked out this position of promoting um, a safe space for anonymity, which was honestly, um, a, it felt good for, you know, kids who wanted to express a sexual identity that wasn't um, something their parents condoned or we, you know, just to have a pseudonymous place online to express yourself. Um, it had that weird feeling of safety and community also in the early days. Was that core to what we might think of as the ideology of social media, the notion that people would be able to come out one way or the other if they choose and hide behind anonymity, that that was one of the the primary benefits of social media in an ideological sense as it was unraveled, whether it was from uh, the LA kids who, who did MySpace or, or the Silicon Valley types who were building other social media platforms, that there was this idea of social media as a form of, of liberation of the self. Yeah, absolutely. At the time, you know, it was really difficult to build your own website. It was expensive to buy the software and you need to know how to code. And so the idea of having a place online that was easy to build an identity for yourself and you could build multiple identities on MySpace, um, you know, for different aspects of your personality. And then those different pages could have different types of friends and communities they were part of. And that that tradition remains, right? There's this idea on Instagram of the Finsta, right? You're a fake Instagram account under a different name. You know, my kids, uh, my daughter who's a teenager has multiple Instagram accounts that represent different communities for her. And so there has been a tradition of that all along. However, Facebook has been the one that has demanded that everyone use a real name and is constantly claiming that that is one of the reasons it's safer. And I feel like what we've learned is that it's not, right? Um, Russian, you know, operatives were able to create tons of fake accounts and try to manipulate our elections. And um, it turns out that there are a lot of loopholes in their supposed real name policy. 
But they have been the proponents all along that the real names is the measure of safety. And I don't think that that's actually true. And most of the other networks like Twitter and Instagram, et cetera, are more uh, forgiving of the multiple identities. Julia, in our conversations with Glenn Reynolds and Stephen Levy and others, we've talked about public events at the beginning of the 21st century in which social media began to play a role. Um, when you think back to 9-11, for example, I'm not sure where you were. We all remember exactly, though, where we were. Um, this 9-11 was still the, the pre-social media age. Is that fair? Yeah, it was actually. And it was, uh, it was weird, right? I was one of the few people, I had a Blackberry, but I was one of the few people I knew that had um, any kind of like mobile <laughs> device um, that allowed me to keep in touch. And so um, it, it really is amazing to think about how, how we all learned about 9-11. I remember I was walking to the subway and I walked by a pizza store and I saw in the window, a TV <laughs> and on the TV was a picture of, uh, you know, the fire in the towers. And that's sort of when I first was like, oh, I think some things might be going on. Um, but now, of course, we see everything live instantly on our social feeds and there's people with their phones taking pictures of everything. And, um, you know, honestly, that's uh, it's allowed for people who didn't have a voice before to have a voice. And there's been a lot of really empowering things about it, but I think we're also learning that it's an overwhelming way to live. How do you think 9-11 would have been different had everyone had a social media account, had Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and Twitter all existed? I mean, to be honest, I think I, I hate to think about what that would be like because I would not, honestly, it's so heartbreaking to think about what the posts and texts would have been like from the people up in the towers who had to make those terrible decisions about jumping or dying by fire. <laughs> I mean, and we would have had more of those, right? We would have been in those situations with them the way that we are with, with people in a lot of the tragedies today. And, um, you know, maybe it would have saved some people. Maybe they would have also learned um, that they should try to leave. I mean, there were some floors, I think that wasn't really possible for them to leave, but um, maybe there were some people who would have had a little bit more information and could have tried to get out. Um, but I don't know. It, it just um, it feels like a devastating thing to witness on social media. Is that, do you think, when historians will look back, um, Julia, at the social media age, if indeed they will define it as a social media age, that suddenly we all not just have a front seat on history, but we are all both in that front seat and on the screen itself. Yeah, I think that is what um, we will look back and say. And I will say that for me as a journalist, it's a really interesting time, right? Because my profession, our goal has always been to witness, right? And so um, there, in most of history, journalists were the only ones kind of who had the wherewithal and the access to witness an event like for instance 9-11 maybe a, a typical example of 9-11 would be that you know reporters would get a briefing from the fire department and they would publish what was said and so that was like their way of bringing that news to the public um, now of course the public doesn't need to rely on journalists they 
rely on citizen reports. And I think it's really reshaping what journalism is for and what it should be for. And I have to say for me personally, I think it's better. I think we are um, the, you know, the fact that people can witness and demand accountability from things in their lives where a journalist wouldn't have been able to have time to take to investigate, you know, um, is, is a real empowering thing. But it also means that journalists have to do a lot more forensics, right? Now we're in the business of authenticating, like, is this viral story that's circulating on the internet actually true? Or is it a deep fake, right? And this is going to be even more challenging in the age of AI. What was the first, if, if, if 9-11 wasn't a social media public event, I mean, all social media events are by definition public, what was the first one, do you think? Was it one of the wars in, in, in Iraq or Afghanistan? Was it the Great Recession? Was it the election of Obama? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm so, I was such an early adopter that I probably think of things earlier than most people, right? Because, you know, the real turning point that a lot of people talk about is... Um, <laughs> South by Southwest when Twitter. Yeah, the Twitter. What was yeah. that in 2008, I think? I, I think, think we were both probably there in Austin. Yeah. 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 And like that was sort of like the first time that I personally felt like I was witnessing a conference that it wasn't at, right? Where I felt like I'm not there, but I feel like I'm there because I'm getting so many reports. And it gave me that ability to experience an event far from remotely in a way that I hadn't ever had before. And so I think for me personally, that was the first time I sort of understood that power. And I think that is the beauty of Twitter um, is the, you know, it always has felt to me very similar to like the AP Newswire, you know, that I used to keep running on my computer as a journalist, like all the breaking news headlines, Twitter had that feeling um, in a way that Facebook and um, MySpace didn't because a lot of the updates there were much more personal about people's lives and their kids and their pets. And somehow Twitter evolved to be much more about public spaces and public discourse. You mentioned, I think you're right, it was 2009 in Austin, Twitter at South by Southwest, when Twitter became both the medium and the message. Yes, that's right. Um, and, you know, it's been, it's hard to talk about Twitter without talking about what, how sad it is that it is not like that right now. You know, in its new configuration with its new owner, um, the breaking news piece of it, um, it, a lot of times I still find some on there, but it's not as reliable. And I'm feeling personally a real loss as a journalist of, of like a way that I used to keep track of events. And it's harder to do that now because uh, the so many journalists have left. Um, I also have partially left. I'm mostly on Mastodon, but I still keep it open because I want to make sure I don't miss things, but it's still, it's nowhere near what it was. Julie, if we go beyond, I mean, South by Southwest was a public event for tech insiders like you and I, but for the rest of the world, probably less so. Um, what was the first then broader public event, public public event, which became a, a social media event? Uh, I, I mentioned the election of, of Obama or, or the Great Recession or perhaps the Arab Spring or Occupy Wall Street, do any of these events spring to mind? Or, or is it wrong to think of a singular event marking the beginning of this public age? 
I think Arab Spring probably takes the prize for the one where maybe the public was um, really engaged for the first time and seeing the power of social media, um, you know, getting live updates from the protests and um, Egypt and other places was um, incredible. And I think there was a real moment of hope that I had and that a lot of people had about how these technologies were going to be democratizing and um, allow for the people's voices to be heard. And of course, you know, what is so sad about all of that is that um, really what we've seen is the opposite, that governments have been able to use the tools uh, for repression to quash dissent, to find dissenters and lock them up. There are countless stories of people who've written a Facebook post or a Twitter post, and then the police show up there next day. And, uh, you know, that happens in a lot of authoritarian regimes and is, is really, it's been really disappointing because the Arab Spring showed what it could be like if this technology was um, before that, you know, the power, institutional powers found a way to, to use it to their advantage. There was a moment where the people had the advantage and they really were using these tools to demand change. Yeah, and you, uh, as you say, I'm going to say you woke up, but you became very aware of the problems. You wrote a book, Dragnet Nation, a quest for privacy, security, and freedom in a world of a relentless surveillance, particularly the surveillance of the state and, of course, of all these big media companies. Um, Julia, you talked about wanting to believe in the democratizing power of social media, particularly in terms of the Arab Spring. What about domestically? You're based in New York. Did the Occupy movement, does, does that trigger any memories or was that a lot of noise without a great deal of reality? No, I think Occupy was also um, a big event um, on social media, but it was, um, I didn't get the feeling that it reached as far as Arab Spring that um, necessarily uh i think about it in terms of my parents you know <laughs> did they notice it or not um and so i would say it was a smaller scale event but super interesting and also one that i think was really interesting because you definitely saw the use of the police using um the social media posts to surveil and to try to contain the protests and so it was the beginning of, I think, a lot of people's awakenings about domestically how these tools are not always just empowering, but in fact can be used by um, the government to quash dissent. Yeah, the, the, the darkening of the horizon is something uh, that you, you've written about. As I said, you're the author of Dragnet Nation. Was there a particular event that marked this? Was it the failure of the Arab Spring, the beginning of the Syrian civil war, uh, what happened in Egypt? Uh, was there something in particular that, that marks the end of the, the optimism about social media broadly? Well, I mean, I think um, it was inevitable. Um, tools are only as powerful as the people who wield them. And um, institutions and states are more powerful than citizens. And so when they got their hands on these tools and figured out how to use them, um, they use them for their own advantage. And so 
I, I think even at the time of Arab Spring, it was clear to me that it was just a moment in um, that uh, was very perilous and very fraught. I don't know if you remember, but there was um, the guy who started the protests in Egypt. He was a former, yeah, it was uh, was one of, it was was a Google guy, right? Former Google guy, and he had set up a Facebook page to organize the protest. And one thing that I think people may have forgotten is that actually. Facebook had taken down the page because he was using a fake name because they love real names and they have a real name policy. So um, it was only because he knew people at Facebook because he had been a Google engineer that he actually pulled some strings and got that page put back up. But that was so precarious, right? And so I remember at the time thinking, if you have to basically have personal connections at Facebook in order to organize a protest, like this is definitely not going to go well. Um, and so, you know, he kind of got an exception to that rule, but it was clear even then with that moment that there was, um, it was going to be hard for protesters, particularly with Facebook, right. With demanding all this um, individual uh, accountability. You, you're a columnist now for the New York Times. You had a very powerful piece uh, earlier this month on the problems with online social media advertising. You write, if it's advertised to you online, you probably shouldn't buy it. It's this, our new age of surveillance. How, how do you think, and you mentioned your kids, of course, before. Uh, I've got kids of a similar age. How are these kids living in a different age? Why is 2023 in terms of the legacy of social media, why is it so different from 2003? Or perhaps are we exaggerating the differences? Well, it's impossible to escape, right? Like in 2003, it was optional to be on social media. And now it's really kind of required. Um, and so for kids in particular, uh, I think that what I've been impressed by is that my teenagers are so much savvier than uh, most of the adults I know about how they use social media. They have multiple fake identities. They are very careful about what they post because they're very aware that they're teachers and that all sorts of people are going to be looking at it. And so I find that they have a sophistication about it, which is both good and bad. It's good because I'm proud that they're not making mistakes, but I feel like it's sad because it means they don't have that innocence to explore um, their different kinds of personalities in a way that I did. You know, I went through a phase, I remember in seventh and eighth grade, where I only wore pink and turquoise, just like that's all I wore. I decided those were the only two colors I wanted to wear. And, you know, what's really good about my life is there's literally no documentation of that. Like there are no pictures. <laughs> no one can ever drag that out and say, you know, what the hell were you doing? But for my kids, they have less freedom that way, right? They know that everything is going to be documented, even if they don't put it on their social media account, someone, one of their friends might. Although I will say they have very nice norms, like kids don't, they usually, they have a norm that they ask each other before posting online a picture of someone else, at least among my kids' friends, which I think is very um, good. So it gives me some hope that like, there are ways that humans can learn to navigate this situation of constant the constant threat that everything you do will be exposed to the entire world, which is something that like, is sort of an unfathomable thing to, to think about. But um, it also just depressing because it means that there's, I feel like that there's left, less room for creativity and experimentation. Yeah, it, it, it speaks to the end of, of privacy. I wrote a book in 2011, Digital Vertigo, where 
I talked about our looming age of Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon, and it seems 10 or 12 years later that that's actually true, at least judging from what you write um, and, and what the markup has been uh, focusing on. Uh, you, you're, you just left it, but you wrote a piece, uh, Journalistic Lessons for the Algorithmic Age. Um, Julia, has in terms of this um, shift, if you like, from the age of social media to the age of AI, is it a natural progression? Are they separate chapters? Are they all really part of the same chapter? I would say they are. It's all an evolution. And I would say that all of it, to be really clear, is built on sort of the indiscriminate collection of data online. Um, you know, the reason that uh, these large language models exist is because they scrape the internet and use that data to build their models. And so that is, you know, I use an environmental analogy in my book, Dragnet Nation. You know, we have, if you think about our data, the way we think about in the environment, you know, basically we have these sort of rapacious companies that are co like collecting our data and using it for their personal profit, right? And this is a collective good, this idea of like this public data, right? So for instance, a huge amount of the, you know, corpus that trains open AI is Reddit. And so that's just a bunch of people who shared their own wisdom in uh, on different topics for reasons that, you know, were really more about mutual aid, helping each other to solve a problem. And then now that's being monetized for um, all these big companies. And that's very similar to social media. The re social media is funded by the, you know, dragnet collection of our personal data and monetization of it. So, so the problem with all of this is that it's all built on this one foundation of, you know, what people call surveillance, um, capitalism. Surveillance, yeah. And, um, we, we've done many uh, shows uh, on, on surveillance capitalism. Some things, Julia, though, never change. Rupert Murdoch, Fox News, remains in the news. You used to work for him uh, at the Wall Street mm -hmm. Journal. They're yep. back in the news. This uh, $787 million settlement, Fox News, with Dominion Voting Systems. What do you make of, and you've written extensively about this, what do you make of the impact of, the social media age on journalism. I know you're 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 quite um, bleak on this. You think in many ways <laughs> well, that the social I mean, media revolution is undermining or is undermining democracy. You write in the in your New York Times uh, piece uh, from earlier this month. Already we know that web tracking has decimated publishers. This has been particularly devastating for traditional news outlets. Global newspaper revenue plummeted from 107 billion in 2000 to nearly. 32 billion in 2022. Of course, Rupert Murdoch still is one of the few men left who believes in so uh, in newspapers, um, and he was the one who who bought MySpace for better or worse. Yeah, he did. He was making a bet on social media. He was right that social media was going to be big, um, but I don't think that um, he had the skills to manage that um, it's pretty clear he didn't have the skills to manage that that kind of a business. Um, he comes from a very traditional media background. But I do think that um, journalism 
you know, people always have said to me when I've been writing about privacy, like, what's the big deal? These are just creepy ads. They follow you around. There's no harm. And the harm is, in my opinion, that the, um, the creepy ads are taking all the money that journalists used to get that funded their publications. So, you know, I worked at the Wall Street Journal for 14 years. And basically during that time, you know, we had, uh, if you wanted to reach a middle-aged guy with a BMW who went golfing on weekends and was like a mid-level executive, you know, you probably would want to buy an ad in the Wall Street Journal. And we were able to charge really high rates for those ads. And that supported enormous quality journalism, right? Well, now you don't need to go to a Wall Street Journal to get a guy like that, right? The fact that we've allowed all this web tracking means that any one of these little ad tech companies that you've never heard of has tracked a person around the web and they can just find that guy who's golfing and they probably find him on a website that is pretty cheap to buy an ad on. It's not going to be on the Wall Street Journal. So they can find that golfing guy. And that transition has taken basically all the money out of journalism. And uh, and so we're in a crisis, right? There are not enough journalists and like there's local news has been decimated. Um, and we're seeing the effects of that around the world. I, I think rising authoritarianism is not a coincidence, right? It is actually part of the fact that there are no watchdogs on the scene, right? Journalists have always served as an important check on power. And if we aren't there, then the power is going to go unchecked. And so I feel very passionate about the fact that the fact that we've allowed all of this online tracking has actually really harmed an important profession, my profession. And so I understand that I'm biased because it's like self-serving, but I also think that it really is a true threat to democracy. Yeah. And you're not just any old journalist, you were a finalist for the, the Pulitzer Prize. You work for the Wall Street Journal. You founded your own company. So you know this business inside out. I wonder, speaking out, thinking out loud, maybe this is not a very wise thought, but in a counterfactual sense, had Murdoch won, had their acquisition of MySpace actually resulted in MySpace dominating social media rather than essentially collapsing, might that have been better for all of us? Might the traditional journalist model have worked more than the Facebook model, which is surveillance capitalism? Well, no, MySpace had the same model. <laughs> Actually, MySpace pioneered the um, that model. You know, Facebook didn't have ads. Uh, MySpace was the first one to do ads, and they um, and they went right into this idea of you know monetizing the data they had about their users. And so uh, that was a, an innovation that Murdoch really pushed for, right? He was very excited about this new ad revenue model. Um, it's just that the execution of running um, a tech platform like that wasn't something that I think they had the expertise for. And also, you know, just as a side note, they had bought News Corp bought MySpace, but against the wishes of the MySpace founders and the heads of MySpace. So they um, they had already started with like a bad relationship with the founders. So it just, I think it was probably doomed to fail. And also most mergers fail as well. Julia, we've done many shows on what I call, at least call the age of ang anxiety, our age of anxiety, particularly an age marked by a public crisis, perhaps an epidemic of mental health. Is there any connection in your view between 
the crisis in mental health, particularly amongst younger people, and this domination of social media in the first quarter of the 21st century? Yeah, there's a lot of speculation about the linkage. And I think there are definitely countries like uh, China that have just made the decision that they're not going to let, they're going to restrict access to social media to their youth because they believe it's harmful. But the data is not really um, out yet. I mean, there isn't really a strong evidence for this connection. There's also a lot of other reasons that, um, you know, youth could be depressed right now in actually that all people could be depressed right now, like having to do with like the existential risks of climate change and um, the kind of growing inequality between the rich and the poor and sort of the precarious nature of uh, everyone's lives in a world where, you know, work is becoming more um, contracted and algorithmically overseen and surveilled. And so people are feeling, are, and people's wages are stagnant. So I feel like there's a lot of reasons why we could be in the age of anxiety. I know for me personally, like certainly scroll doom scrolling on my phone doesn't help, but it also sometimes can be uh, a nice break. And so I don't know that I bought into this idea that social media is really the reason for all of these problems. Finally, Julia, um, one of the, the stories in the news um, over the last week is this Discord data leak, 21-year-old National Guardsman who leaked all this in really, really uh, dangerous information, um, a man called Jack Tahira. There's something odd about this story. I don't know if you would agree with me in the sense that this guy is no... Edward Snowden, he doesn't seem to have any particular political agenda. It was a lot of young men in, a, in, 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 an, in, in, in Discord uh, showing off about that access to data. What does the, the, the Tahira leak on Discord, what does it tell us about our age today and, and how we've evolved, we collectively, from the world of MySpace, which you covered more than 20 years ago now, and today's age of discord and Jack Tahira? I mean, I think it's just um, our growing realization that like uh, data is, um, it's not just benign, right? Everybody wants to collect it and hoard data because they want information advantage. But, you know, the problem is once you have data, it's a risk to you, right? So for the instance, like the government has all this data, intelligence data, and then you have to control access. And you have, obviously they made some poor decisions on who could access this data. He seemed very low level to have the access that he had. And, but that was also true of Snowden, right? Like he also didn't really have the level of clearance that you would have expected to get the kind of secrets that he did. And so we've repeatedly seen that, um, basically people are not doing appropriate access controls and we have data breaches every week, right? We've gotten totally inured to them, but the reality is that we have to start understanding that like data minimization is actually just as important as security. So like you only keep what you need because ultimately what we are seeing is people can't secure their data. And so we need to understand that maybe just keeping less is, is a better move. And you know, the European rules that are going into effect this um, year have some strict data minimization requirements and other countries have started moving towards data minimization rules.